Good evening to you all, and what a great pleasure it is to continue this party for beloved Sylvia. Um, many of you I saw down in the meadow um, with all the children and stories and families and um, delight that was happening in honor of you, Sylvia, and really what you've created here. Um, and as we begin the evening, um, before Sylvia uh, sp speaks to us, um, first I want to just welcome you here. If you weren't down in the meadow and you're joining the festivities, um, it's not only a pleasure to come together in this particular day in a cool hall in the midst of the, the great heat wave, um, but to honor and um, take pleasure and delight and um, celebrate and enjoy um, the company of Sylvia as we have for, for some of us for years and years and years. For you and I go back 30 years and they've been 30 really good years. They've been so much fun. Anyway, to share this together, um, the very opening, I would like to introduce um, Naomi Newman, who is another beloved and dear friend of both Sylvia's and mine. She is um, um, a professional theater person, traveling Jewish theater for many years, and playwright and acting and all sorts of things. She's been on the board at Spirit Rock and a part of this community for a very long time. She said in answer to a question just a few minutes ago about her relationship to Sylvia that they were girlfriends, um, in the best sense of the words. And um, so it is a pleasure to introduce Naomi, who I also love and respect. Well, in tribute to my teacher and my good friend and her genius for transmitting the Dharma through recipes for daily life. And in recognition of our shared lineage, I'd like to do an excerpt from one of my plays written in the voice of the Jewish grandmother. Enough of the Oive path. Now we got to start making a new way path. So you take a shovel, you take a groundhopper, you take a hairpin. If all you got is a hairpin, you take a hairpin and you start digging and you dig in all directions, up and down, right and left, in and out. Not in a straight line. <laughs> Nothing natural or interesting goes in a straight line. As a matter of fact, it is the quickest way to the wrong place. <laughs> and don't pretend you know where you are going. Because if you know where you are going, that means you've been there. And you're going to end up exactly where you came from. Okay, so now you are digging. A little song doesn't hurt. All of a sudden, you bump into a stone. Oh, it's so cute. Uh, throw it away like a hot potato. You are going to bump into lots of stones, geologically fascinating, stones of 
blaming, resentment, self-pity. Oh, from these I could build a palace. <laughs> Forget it. You build from them what you got is a prison. So you bend down, you pick them up, and you throw them away. Dig a little, pick a little, throw a little, turn. Yeah. Dig a little, pick a little, throw a little... Now, this is where you've got to pay special attention to getting lost. If you're not lost, you're in trouble. Okay, lost, lost, good. Sit down, blow your nose, and wait. Sometimes you've got to wait a very long time until a bird or a stranger comes along with a message. And you know what you are supposed to do while you are waiting? You are supposed to do nothing. <laughs> Garnish, zilch, nothing. And if you can do that, if you can do nothing until the right thing comes along, then you have passed the hardest test of all. Okay. So now you are back on the road, nice and easy, no rush, no push. And you put one little foot, and you put two little foot, and you put three little foot, and you watch out. Watch out. You are about to fall into the puddle of anti-manifestation. Here on the fourth step, you are meant to fall down. Not once, not twice, not occasionally, but on every fourth step, the ground opens up, the wind blows, a branch hits you in the head, you trip on stones, you twist your ankle, your heart breaks, you gotta fold the laundry. <laughs> and they've closed the two left lanes. All of the forces gathered together to stop you. And some people, when it happens, they fall down. And they lie there for the rest of their lives. But then there are some people who learn how to fall down, get up. Did you get that? That is one move, fall down, get up. Okay, so now you are walking your own path. And you notice that with every step, you straighten up a little. Oy, and it hurts. All the places you've been bending over that got stuck. And don't try to pretend that it doesn't hurt. Because if you want to skip the pain, you will never straighten up. Okay, that's it. That's how you do it. You dig, you bend down, you throw away, you go in circles, you get lost, you wait, you listen, you fall down, get up. And inside, you unfold. That's it, in a nutshell. You got it. Well, if you didn't get it completely memorized, don't feel bad. Maybe there's an easier way, and God willing, you'll find it.
A perfect tribute, <laughs> madam. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure all of you have been in this room before with me, and you know that this throne is a very unusual thing. <laughs> so I'm trying to organize myself on the throne and find out how I'll be comfortable. I am comfortable. I don't think I've ever been more comfortable in my whole entire life than this moment. This is incredible. Really, every cup runneth over metaphor that you want to think about. Um, I'm, I, I thought about how it would be when I came here tonight. I, I imagined it in advance, and I was pretty sure I'd be overwhelmed. And I am, uh, in the best possible way. So let me tell you something about Naomi. Thank you so much, Naomi. Uh, I realized when Naomi uh, told me that she was going to do that, do an offering for me tonight uh, to start that uh, the, uh, about it probably was ten years ago at least uh, at a fundraising dinner to raise funds to build this extraordinary place. Uh, Jack, my friend Jack, and Joseph Goldstein. And I were all the after-dinner speakers. Do you remember that, Naomi? And you were the introducer of the after-dinner speakers at this lovely, elegant dinner. And you said a really extraordinary line when she introduced us. We each had 15 minutes to talk Dharma. And we actually didn't prepare with one another. We were going to be a 45-minute Dharma talk given by three people and in order. Ready, set, go. But Naomi said before we started, she said, there is no better entertainment than a Dharma talk. <laughs> and, it, and it's exactly right, because there's nothing more consoling and more satisfying than hearing what's true. It meets exactly the place in you that knows it's true. I'm sure you all got the message of Naomi's piece, or at least the part that, uh, that I thought, oh, that's just us. We come here and we wait, and we wait because we're stuck in the various ways that we're stuck until a message arrives. And it's a message that helps us straighten up and go forward to a place we haven't been before. So I thought I'd start with a story. Um, because it, the story, this happened to me just a few weeks ago, and it's been on my mind. It's kind of such a, well, let me not tell you it's a wonderful story. I'll tell you the story. Uh, I was coming home from somewhere, and I was in an airport security line making my way, you know how you do in those cordoned off lanes, making my way up to the security gate. And I was traveling alone, so I'm just making my way along. And suddenly I became privy to the conversation of the people behind me. You know how it is, people you, you really pack together close. So I hear two voices behind me having a conversation, and it goes like this. One person says... It's your fault. <laughs> and the other one says, what do you mean it's my fault? And the first one says, it's your fault that we're late. And the one says, no, how can, how can you think it's my fault? Prove it to me that it's my fault that we're late. I don't have to prove it to you. Well, don't ask me then. Anyway, I peek over my shoulder to see who they are, pretending not to be looking at them, you know, pretending to be looking past them. 
But I'm looking over just to see that there are two young people dressed in sporting outfits. They, they, I don't remember whether they had golf clubs or tennis rackets, but it was clear that they're going on a holiday together. And, I, and I, I'm aware that this is not a good way to start a holiday. So I turn around, and, and the ping-pong conversation continues. It's your fault, it's your fault, it's your fault, it's your fault, no, it's your fault. And I have this sudden urge. I think to myself, I'm going to turn around, and I'm going to say to them, listen. It doesn't matter whose fault it is. You're either going to get on that plane or you're not going to get on that plane. And what's more, if you don't get on that plane, they have plenty more planes. You'll go on the next plane. And what's more, you don't even know if the plane that you're trying to get on is going to be the plane that's going to crash and the one after that is going to be the plane that's going to get there successfully. You don't know even if you should be on this plane. You don't know anything. The only thing you're doing is you're messing up this holiday. But I didn't do it. Because I thought to myself, you know what? I thought to myself, I, could, I thought I could do it. I could get away with it. I could do it sweetly. I could get away with it. But I thought I, I had an, an, a vision of them arriving at their destination, wherever it is, and telling the story of we were waiting online in the airport and this wacky little old woman. And I just didn't want to do it, so I didn't do it. So then I continue through the security. And you have to take off practically everything now to go through the security. <laughs> I take off the jacket and and put my suitcase up and open the computer and take my shoes off and push it all through and get it all through the other side. And then I'm on the other side where I've successfully gotten through. And I'm on one foot and then the other foot. You know how you have to stand on one foot and the other foot putting on your shoes and zipping up my bag and putting back in my computer. And I realize I catch a just sight of the people who are just in front of me, another couple who have just come through the sensor gate just in front of me. And they're also putting on shoes and, and redressing themselves. And they stop in the middle of that and they give each other a hug and a kiss, just like that. Not a big demonstration of passion, but just... And I thought maybe they're congratulating each other on making it through. (laughs) But then I had a thought, I'm going to turn to the people behind me and I'm going to tell them, look, you see these people in front of me? There are two possibilities in life, in difficult circumstances. You can, in the moment, celebrate and kiss the moment, or you can have a fight. So I didn't do it, but it was so clear. And, you know, in the, in the hubris, best Dharma talk in the world, I thought, what have I learned really in 30 years? That that's about it. That you can, you can fight with the moment, you can be contentious with experience, or you can collaborate with it. You can do this difficult life, inevitably challenged, meeting it as a friend with good heart, or you can fight with it. That that's essentially the, the choice that we get. And I wonder, I, one more thing happened just the day before we came on retreat two weeks ago. And then I'll tell you my vision all through these last two weeks in retreat. On the very day that the retreat started, two weeks ago today, uh, there was the uh, World Cup soccer. How many people watch the World Cup soccer? So the, one of the really compelling thoughts I had about it is, do you know that one billion people watched? That's, that's one-sixth of the world's population. 
watch that game. And there were various advertisers who had bought 30-second spots throughout it. I can't even remember what the advertisers were, but I thought, well, they must have worked very hard on those spots because of, you know, they must have cost quite a lot of money, and a lot of people were getting to hear their message. And then I thought, what if somebody gave me a 30-second spot <laughs> and one-sixth of the world's population, which would be most of them adults, given the way the world's population is mostly children, were listening, what would I say to them? It'd be something like, there's another way to do it. We don't have to fight. We could, in fact, in this complicated world, with each of us coming through our lives with the challenges and the changes that we each of us face, we could do it gracefully. We could do it congenially. We could make friends with each other. It could be a different world. And then I came here and I began the two-week retreat with uh, James and Sharda and Sally. And I had a very interesting experience in terms of doing the retreat because I actually stayed the night in Kentfield. Uh, I like to go back to my son's house and, and visit my granddaughter overnight and be there and then come back early in the morning and be here until the end of the day and then go. So I'd come here in the morning and I'd be here all day in this quiet, protected, incredible spot, you know. I look around and so many people come in and say, this is the Garden of Eden. This is an amazing place. It's not only amazingly quiet out here in the valley and beautiful, but we really work hard to keep the tone of it so um, soothing that the, the retreats are held in silence so that people have the the really the rest of not the din of so much noise all the time. We keep it quiet. They have served lovely meals that are presented beautifully. They have a very simple room. I think actually we've, we, are, we are actually satisfied with very little when we think about it. Come here and we get a little monastic rule, room, simple meals, it's quiet. We take precepts the first night which means that we recite together that we're going to live with rules that mean that we're going to treat each other uh, respectfully and politely and that we won't infringe in any way on anybody else's being or their person or their space. There aren't so many places in the world like this now where there are no locks on the doors and you can leave your stuff all over the place. Nothing ever happens to anybody's stuff here. I often tell people on retreat that when we get up in the front and we say, now I'm going to give the instructions for today, we do. We give instructions and more instructions and more instructions. And I like to say often that we just do the instructions because you have to say something. You know, you can't just say, ready, set, go. But actually, <laughs> I pretty much think we could say, ready, set, go. That when you come here, people feel safely held they relax, and they begin to really have uh, a new view. My friend Sheila, when I talked to her about what I was going to talk about tonight, she said, my experience is that the mind gets reformatted when it comes in. That's the new work. It's reformatted. The old view of there are good guys and bad guys, and it's your fault and it's my fault. The mind becomes more spacious. 
one of the things that was true for me, and the reason I told you I went back and forth to Kenfield, is when I went back and forth to Kenfield, I listened to the radio, and I watched the television, and I had the views. At some point, I thought, these are like the people behind me and the people in front of me. Um, going through the airport. I walked out from here and I see the whole world fighting. It's your fault. No, it's your fault. It's their fault. They started. They did worse. He's the real culprit. They began it. When did it begin? Last week? Last month? Two years ago? Twenty years ago? In the beginning of time? The fight about who's responsible and we have to get them back going on outside. And then I come here and not only does it feel good here, But the work that everybody's doing inside is the work of reconciliation. Naomi really pointed to that in what she said, the the crimped up parts in our own neural system, in our own heart, in our own mind, in our own brain. They become relaxed. The way that I see it is when people relax. This is what happens to me. This is what I hear from people. But I can tell you about my experience because this is what I know the best of all. When I come on retreat, which even includes this week, uh, even with coming and going, and I sit here and I feel at ease and well-held, my mind relaxes. When it relaxes, the piece of problem that it's focused on isn't held so tightly in my attention. It's there. There's a piece of problem in my mind. There's a few pieces of problem in my mind, in my life. There's a few pieces of problem in everybody's life. And there's a whole world problem in everybody's life, too. But it doesn't feel to me that that's the whole of my experience. When my mind is at ease, I think to myself, well, there's this that I have to take care of, and that, and I'm alive, and there's a world... And there are turkeys outside and deer walking around with their babies. I said to the group this week that if we didn't have those deer and their babies and the turkeys, we'd have to import them because they're a major piece of what heals the heart here. They walk around. The turkeys are so improbable, if you look at them. I mean, who could have imagined? What was God thinking? You know, they don't match... They're, 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 they're not balanced. They're put together wrong. They wobble. <laughs> One of the lovely scenes here, because there's not much to do. People don't read. They don't write. We don't tell them what's in the news. They don't get phone calls. Is the turkeys come up and they, they do turkey behavior. The turkeys fan out their tails and strut around. And the women turkeys are completely uninterested in the strutting around. But then all of the retreatants stand there watching them like it's a <laughs> like it's a it's the entertainment of the day. But you know, in a certain way there's a lesson in that. Life is miraculous. It continues on. It's been this way always. The the fundamental things that my mind remembers when it isn't caught because it's too tired and too confused and too angry, and too annoyed, or too sad, or too grieved, or too anything, when it relaxes, and it isn't two of any of those, it's a little bit balanced, it remembers. Things happen, they pass. Everything that happens to me, it's one of the things that happens to people in life. My friend Martha, uh, my very good friend Martha, who died this spring, died of pancreas cancer, and um, 
we were very close through in her, when she was well and as she was dying. And at one point, when her illness had gotten past what painkillers could really keep in any kind of control, she said, you know, I don't think I'm being a very good Buddhist about this, you know, about being with experience as it unfolds gracefully. I don't feel very graceful about this. She says, actually, she said, it's terrible. I said, well, it is terrible. I don't think you're supposed to feel graceful about it. I think you're just supposed to not be mad at it. She said, well, sometimes I'm mad at it. And I said, well, you're not supposed to be mad at yourself for being mad at it. (laughs) She said, well, here's the truth. She said, sometimes I think to myself, why me? And then I feel bad. And she said, and I feel that for a while. Why me? Why me? And then she said, and after a while I remember, why not me? And then I'm all right. Things happen to people. People get pancreas cancer. Other things happen to other people. There are things that we can fix and things that we can't fix. When my mind is reasonably clear, it remembers that things happen. They happen just because we're people. I don't have to take them personally. The things that I can fix, I can fix. The things that I can't fix, there's the possibility that I could live with in some way. One of the women who comes quite regularly to Wednesday morning uh, recently was diagnosed with uh, MS. A really young woman in the peak of her career and unhappy about having it. And she said, I really need my practice more than ever now. And uh, she told the group about uh, her father, who was a woodworker, having made for her an enormous plaque with the line that she, the Dharma line that uh, we actually say quite often in conversations on Wednesday morning. The Buddha didn't say this, it's a latter day interpretation. She said, the, My father made me a plaque and I have on my wall, and the plaque says, This isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. <laughs> Which is really the simplest way to say, this is, this is, this is the practice that allows us to discover, not learn about, but actually personally discover that we have the heart to do our lives. Say, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. I kept watching as these last two weeks went by, the kind of contretemps between the split screen, I'd go out, and all the discussions and the commentators on television Uh, talking heads, it's their fault, it's their fault, they started, we're the right ones, they're the right ones. And then come back here and sit with people all day long who are discovering as they sit quietly and as the um, um, conflicts of their lives arise in their mind as they always do. And the conflicts arise arise in their mind in a mind that's relaxed and at ease that they discover that it wasn't this one's fault or that one's fault or their fault or anybody's fault, that things happen when there's confusion present and that actually there's no one to forgive because there's no one to blame, that it wasn't this person's fault or that person's. I'm trying to think whether it's more of a relief for people to discover that it isn't the people they've been blaming's fault or it isn't their own fault. Maybe both, that there's no one to blame, that everyone is doing the best they can, 
that when people do things that hurt other people, they're confused. It's a great relief for me when I do things that I'm not happy about afterwards to think, I was confused. It was the best I could do when I was confused. I feel remorse then, but I don't have to feel so badly about myself. It finishes with bad guys and good guys. There are no bad guys and good guys. There's only confusion and wisdom. And what we do here is we try slowly, piece by piece, once again, over and over again. I told people, I hadn't meant to tell you this story, but it's a little story. I told it this morning because it just popped into my mind. I hadn't remembered it. It's so easy to get confused. Our nervous systems are so easily sparked. I opened my eyes sitting in my house meditating, and I opened my eyes in the chair that I sit, and there was a squirrel um, draped over uh, a tree. The back, I saw the backside of a squirrel hanging down in the crook of a tree right ahead of me. Actually, I saw his flanks and his hind legs and his tail straight down and inert. And it looked to me like the squirrel had died draped over in the tree. It was alarming to open your eyes and see that. I felt terrible. And, you know, I felt bad. First of all, I felt bad for the squirrel. And then I felt bad for me because I didn't know how I'd get the squirrel down out of the tree and it didn't look good hanging in my... <laughs> and I banged on the window, squirrel, and it just, nothing happened. And then I banged on the window, harder, squirrel. And suddenly it got up. And it ran down the branch. I was so happy. You know, my heart leaped up, squirrel alive. And it ran down the branch, and it pounced into my bird feeder and started eat the bird feed. And I was furious. And I'm pounding on the window, get out of here, squirrel. So the, 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 the amount of time between I was worried that the squirrel was dead and I was ready to kill him was... was very, very short. We have fragile nervous systems. So I think that one of the ways of thinking about what we do here is that we come here to stop and think it over. We come here to stop and think and pause. Sometimes people have the sense that meditation means not thinking, that thoughts are the enemy. We do plenty of thinking and reflecting. And I really think that the, the underpinning of mindfulness is not just living in the moment, but living in the moment and noticing what happens if you live in the moment. That if you're not, if I, when I am not going over old stories of who did me wrong or planning revenge about who offended me, when I am not thinking worries about this or that or the other that's not happening now, I'm really more aware of my own good heart potential. I think that the truth for all of us is that when we're not confused, we're fundamentally kind. I think that human beings are, uh, we're an amazing animal, you know. I think we're uh, companionable animals. We're herd animals, you know. We don't, most of us are not hermits. We like to be with other people We're interested in other people's stories. We read novels about the lives of people who aren't even real people, let alone real people. We're interested in each other. We're interested in how did you do a life, and how did you do a life, and how does it work for you? 
We're companionable and I think we're basically compassionate. We care about it when somebody's hurting. We worry about them. I actually think that's the really lovely thing about being a human being is we have a heart that's available to console or to applaud or to be friendly. I think those are the, the three kinds of ways that we reach out to people. As you know, you think about the, the, the fancy words for that uh, metta karuna mudita, that it, the Pali words on our residence halls. They really mean friendliness and consolation and uh, appreciation. And that's really what we do with people when we're not confused. We have the other extraordinary ability as human beings to have a space between an impulse and an intention to act. That's an amazing thing. We can have a desire to do something, to actually take something or hurt something or strike out. We can have an impulse and we have a, a lag time that of considering, is this a wise impulse or not? It's an amazing thing that human beings can feel like doing something and not do it. And here we have a world that's in a very, very difficult place in history. I don't know if it's in the worst time in history, but it's in a difficult time. Imagine we could have a different world where we shared the food, where we shared the resources, where we took care of each other where it was really true that people had enough food, enough medicine, enough education, we could have a different kind of a world. And we have a world where greed and hatred and delusion are still making wars. And poverty and starvation and illness. I don't know what I'd say in that 30-second spot, but something like, If we stopped and thought it over, there'd be a better way to do this. Let's all stop and think it over. That's what we do here. We stop and we think it over. Again and again and again. (laughs) I thought... I'm glad that I, I'm glad that I said that because it, a connection came in my mind that I can tell you the story that I think is my most favorite teaching story in 20 years of teaching. This is my I think this is the best story I've ever told, and I was hopeful that it would come into my mind so I can tell it to you. I was waiting for some segue so I could get there. I wanted to talk about how plain it is. You know, think about the, the idea when I began to meditate 30 years ago. It was kind of a fringe thing, meditation. I had kind of a woo feeling about it. And, um, you know, meditation is very plain and, and mindfulness is very ordinary. I think it does this extraordinary thing of clearing the mind of confusion. So I want to tell you a story about explaining that to people here in Marin County. And I particularly am glad to tell the story because my grandson, Colin, who... Where are you, Colin? Are you here? Anyway, there he is, okay. (laughs) My grandson, Colin, uh, you can tell the age of the story. My grandson, Colin, who was starting Santa Cruz this fall, was a sixth grader in uh, Marin Primary School. And the sixth grade at Marin Primary School invited me to come to teach about the Buddha 
and about meditation because they had finished a, uh, a, a, a segment of studying about India. So when I came there and met these 26, 12-year-olds, I was particularly interested in uh, teaching about um, meditation as paying attention because it really is paying attention. I really wanted to do that because I wanted to demystify it and also because I'm Colin's grandmother and I didn't want to seem weird. So, <laughs> so I started out by saying about mindfulness is really about paying attention and who here... I, I talked about how good it was to pay attention in school. If you pay attention in class, I said, look, if you pay attention, you don't miss the homework, you don't miss what the teacher is teaching, you don't get distracted, you get the work finished on time, carrying on, carrying on about how good it is to pay attention. And then I say, you know, the reason of paying attention, it's on top of all those, you can do the work done better, but you get wise if you pay attention. Who knows what wise is? So different people raise their hands. My grandfather... um, knew that smoking wasn't good for him, but he smoked anyway, and then he got sick. That wasn't wise. And other people talked about who wise, wise, not wise. And I was carrying on with the paying attention, paying attention. And a boy named Robert raised his hand, and he said, um, in our textbook, they said that people who meditated could tell the future and tell the past and actually could read your mind. Is that true? So I said, well, you know, sometimes it happens that um, people who meditate a lot, they develop these certain kinds of special powers. And it really is true. It happens to some people sometimes. But really, it's about paying attention. It's just really about paying attention. And I'm back on the paying attention and paying attention. I carry it on again. And pretty soon, Robert has his hand up again. And he said, we saw in our textbook that there were pictures of people lying on beds of nails and other people walking on hot coals because they meditated. He said, uh, is that true? Can you do that? I said, well, you know, it's really true that some people who meditate a lot, they begin, they are able to so control their experience of pain that they can do these extraordinary things, and then they do the extraordinary things to show off about that they can do that. But really what we do, it's about paying attention. And I carry on, and he's got his hand up again. And then I call on him again, and he said, Colin said that you once met a woman who was such a good meditator that she could walk through walls. Is that true? So I said, well... That is true, actually. I, uh, I met a woman who was the teacher of some of my teachers, and uh, she's a Bengali woman. She's dead now. She's a Bengali woman. She lived in Calcutta. He said, did you meet her? I did meet her. They, my, my, my teachers brought her to this country and took her from city to city, and she stayed in Massachusetts for a while and taught there and introduced her to all of their students in all the major cities. Said, you met her? I did meet her. I said, you stayed in my house. Did you talk to her? I did talk to her. Did you see her walk through any walls? I said, no, but you know, my teachers told me that she could, so I assumed that she could. He said, how did she do it? I said, well, what they said was that she could concentrate so hard that her molecules all disintegrated 
and then they passed, dissolved, and they passed through the wall, and then they reconstituted on the other side. So 26 people are shaking their head (laughs) as if that's the most probable thing. (laughs) And we continued on, and that was the end of it. And I taught for 90 minutes, an hour and a half. We did sitting meditation, breathing meditation, walking meditation, a little yoga. It was great, and I went home. Three days later, I had a good time. Three days later, I get a package of letters. You know how you get letters from a grade school class uh, that the teacher has them write? Thank you very much. So 26 letters, 25 letters say, uh, Dear Sylvia, one of them says, Dear Grandma. And they all say about, Thank you very much for coming to our class. I enjoyed this, I enjoyed that. I liked the, uh, when we walked around the room. I liked when we did the breathing. I liked what you said about the Buddha. Like this, like that. The one letter <laughs> said, Dear Sylvia, thank you very much for coming to our class. All the, you know, all I like this, that, and the other. And I'm still thinking about that woman <laughs> who could walk through walls. And he said, What I'm wondering about, what if, in the middle of walking through a wall, she became distracted. Would she get stuck in the wall forever? So, this is a great story. This is a great story. It's a great story on several levels. First of all, it's a great story because I love it that Robert was so diligent about that. I mean, he really wanted to know. He really kept asking. You know, when I thought about it afterwards, my teacher said she could walk through walls. I said, great, that's fine. I never asked how did she do it or why is it important to walk through a wall. Or, But, I mean, he was really seriously thinking about it. And on top of that, I really thought about what a good metaphor it is because the truth is, that I get stuck in walls all the time. I get stuck in walls every time I get caught in a anger, in a lust for something that I need to have, any kind of imperative in the mind, any kind of a view that I'm not ready to let go of, any kind of an anything that has caught my attention and which I can't let go of is a wall. And I suffer when I'm caught in walls, walls of resentment, walls of grudge, And I suffer until I realize that I will be stuck in that wall until I stop building it. That I am building the wall with my own views and opinions and stories. And when I stop building it, I can walk through the wall. I think that that's what we're trying to do here. We are trying to find all the ways in which we are stuck in walls, all the stories that keep us held captive, all the stories that get in the way of us seeing clearly, all the stories that keep us from seeing this could be a different world. So I want to end by telling you the vision that I had in the last week. I was thinking about it a lot. I was getting ready for this group of people to leave, so 80 people, and people that I got to know fairly well over the two weeks, And they're all getting ready to go out in the world. And since the people that I work with, I know their stories quite well. And they're going back in the world. Well, my my friend Sheila would call it reformatted, changed. 
their stories, they've put down some old views. The walls are less solid. Their minds are more forgiving. Their internal wars are quietened. They go out in the world different. And I imagine them going out to all the places in the world, many of them to different places in the United States, some of them to Europe, others to Australia, people all over the place. And I could see that vision. And I thought about the, the story of the Buddha, the, one of the scripture stories, which is the Buddha giving a mandate um, to the monks and nuns that he was sending out to teach after he taught them for a long period of time. And it begins with words that continue to stir me. He says, go forth and teach the truth in the idiom of the people. And I imagine in my mind's eye, when I, always, when, I heard, when I hear that line, I always have this little view, if you can imagine, like a computerized view of here's a Buddha in the middle of India 2,500 years ago, and these little monks and nuns are going forth in all the directions, all over Asia, as they did through all the Asian continent, and in the more recent years, over into Europe, and in the last century. It's as if all these little monks and nuns fly over the ocean, and here they are in in, uh, the United States, and Canada, and the whole Western Hemisphere. So I thought about superimpose that computer image of go forth, O monks and nuns, and teach the truth in the idiom of the people. And I thought about the people who left here this morning, going forth, O monks and nuns. And I told them this. I said, we are all secret monks and nuns. We don't have robes. But actually, inside, we each of us go forth carrying the message that peace is possible. We could stop. We could think. We could reformat. We could change our mind about there being anyone to blame. No one to blame and everyone to teach. No one to fight with and everyone to nourish. We could have a different world. So I had these two images superimposed, everyone from here going out. And in the ten years of this, nine years, I think, since what year did we come into this room? Somewhere around there. People have been going out and going out and going out, and our schedule is full all the time. The whole year is full of retreats. People move out and other ones move in, and here's this whole like oasis in the middle of a world of turmoil from which little monks and nuns in disguise are going out week after week after week and telling the truth in the idiom of the people. And when, when, when the Buddha said in the idiom of the people, I think he was meaning in Hindi or Gujarati or Urdu or whatever. But I think we each of us, in any work that we do, Dharma teacher, most of us are not Dharma teachers. Most of us are... Whatever we are, teachers and whatever we are in the world. But we meet people, and with what we say and how we act, we carry the, we carry the, the word that it's possible to be a friend in this world. It's possible to keep a peaceful heart. One of the things that I'm very, very grateful for on this birthday is this project of Spirit Rock that's here. 
I feel incomparably blessed in my life. I, 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 I think I have some major good luck, you know. Major good luck. It's an incomparable thing to have good health at 70. I really know that. It's an incomparable thing to have had a life partner for the last 54 years, since I was 16 years old. Um, It's incomparable. That's just really good luck. and children and grandchildren who are healthy, and amazing friends. I see some of my Dharma teacher friends, there's Sharda and Sally in the back, with whom I was teaching this morning, and uh, there's James over there. James and I have collectively uh, sat in, in meditation halls together in the middle of the night in different parts of the country for the last 30 years. James and, James and I have different... Uh, sleeping schedules. He goes to sleep late and I get up early. And I'd come in and James would go out. We didn't have that plan. But for a long time I thought we were, we were keeping a vigil in meditation halls together. So, and, and here's my dear friend Jack, who was my first teacher, uh, whom I met on uh, July 7th, 1977, in Toledo, Washington, when my life changed. Um, Really, so in my life, in my personal life, many of you are my personal friends, and I am incredibly blessed with wonderful friends. Those of you that I've met and been in teaching situations with, I'm incredibly blessed. And look at this place. It's amazing. When we first came in here and it was being built the first time, do you remember the first time we walked in this room and it was, the roof had been put up, and we said, oh, you know, do, you, do you think we're wise enough to teach in here? You know, is this much better than we are? But we decided if it was or it wasn't, it was too late, so we would just have to try hard. <laughs> so really what I want to say is that, in addition to my personal good fortune in friends and family and health, I can't think of something that pleases me more than the work that we do here, the part that I've had in it, the part that you, many of you, have had in building this place and keeping it going. So much of uh, the teachings in this tradition have carried on for two and a half millennia now because of the generosity of people who wanted these teachings in the world. In this world now, I can't think of anything more important than having a training place where people can come and remember that we can have forgiving hearts. We can become compassionate. We can remember that we are not become, remember that we are compassionate companioners at heart and that we are happiest when we're doing that. And we can go out in the world and speak on behalf of peace. You know, a long time ago, people used to imagine that there was something uh, in meditation that led to passivity. I think the opposite. I think that the more that I see clearly the, the, the pain in the world, the more I am mandated to do something about it. I think we each feel that, really. So I hope that the work here 
continues for generations and generations. And I would like you to join in supporting that work. So what I'd like you to think about is consider being a part of our organization, of joining what we call the Stewardship Council. The people, Stewardship Circle, the people here who are uh, joined together to make sure that we keep this place going. The Stewardship Circle is really the operating budget for Spirit Rock. It doesn't build new buildings. Um, It keeps the lights on. It pays the phone bills. It keeps the whole operation going so that week after week people can come and go and come and go. We can continue this image. Do you like that little image of those little monks and nuns going, I love it, I see it in my mind. We should do it on a computer maybe. So I'd like to invite you to join that stewardship circle. There's, there are uh, forms to do that outside. I'd like to invite you to take one home. People join, and uh, they've joined. That's it. Then you're a part of us. Um, you can join at any level of support. There's a lowest level, which is modest. The teachers belong to the stewardship circle. Everyone that's part of this belongs to it. We have a stake in it happening. I would really like for you to consider joining with us in this enterprise. Conventional wisdom uh, about inviting people to contribute is to encourage them to do it right now. I'd like to be a little unconventional about it. I'd like you to actually take the material home with you and think about it for two reasons. I, one of them is I want you to really think about it and know it's completely your decision to do it. I want this to be a birthday party that you just got invited to as our guest. So I want you to go home and think about it and decide if it suits you to do that. And really, truth to tell, the other reason I want you to go home and think about it is I think you'll be more generous if you go home and think about it than less. So that's a complete disclosure about that. I think the one, I I have to end at some point. Um, Most of my friends know that if you wind me up, (laughs) I go on and on. I really want to say, uh, I I want want to say thank you very much. Um, My friend John Travis had a teacher in, um, had a teacher in, uh, in India whose habit it was to respond, meet people. And, you know, when you meet people, you usually say, you know, this is so-and-so, the person says hello. He would say thank you, this particular person. His practice was meeting people and saying thank you. And um, the more I've thought about that story uh, and realized that when we meet uh, experiences of people by saying thank you as if they've come as a gift, uh, we meet them with hearts open. I think when you meet people or life with heart open, any kind of a thing that you've been holding just disappears. I am so overwhelmingly thankful and grateful in this moment. I can't imagine anything ever getting stuck in my mind again. It probably will. <laughs> but at this moment, I have never been happier. 
so thank you very much. Oh, so wonderful. Um, I get to stand up here for those of you I've not met. I'm one of Sylvia's good friends, Jack Cornfield, and, um, and wear uh, this beautiful tie that I got from Sylvia. She was wearing it years ago, um, and I admired it. I just loved it. And I said, Sylvia, I love that tie. You know, I want that tie. And she said something like, how much will you give me for it? <laughs> and she went on to turn it over and show me that it comes from Save the Children. And I said, a hundred bucks if you give it to me right now. And she said, I will send that immediately to save the children. And somehow it represents her joy, because all of these smiling children, her generosity to save the children and to me. Um, thank you for the tie. <laughs> My favorite tie. Um, and I want to speak a little bit about Sylvia and then read some words from a few other teachers and invite a few teachers to to also add their voices. Um, first, I just love you dearly, Sylvia. Sylvia's 30 years, one of my companions and, and colleagues and delighted friends and somebody I respect and admire and learn from and enjoy sharing with and telling stories with and crying with and all the things that you do with one of your best friends on the whole earth. Um, so it's not just the tie. The tie is kind of a... And I really think that Sylvia is a kind of a, a genius um, as a teacher and as a sharer of the Dharma um, in, the, in the best sense of that word because she makes what could be complicated and arcane and, and um, you know, distant from some other culture, she makes it so simple and so straightforward and obvious, E equals MC squared, right? And this is the way to live as a wise human being. It's not really very complicated. And it's gorgeous, um, and it's wonderful. And Sylvia is able to do that for a lot of reasons. Um, one is that um, she's somebody who just loves to share. She said to me many years ago that whenever I learn something, then I also want to teach it. I just want to do it. So when she said, I knew when I started teaching him learning meditation, of course I was going to teach it at some point. But she's taught everything else, you know, from chemistry to yoga to whatever else. Um, and also Sylvia is very much of an adventurer, um, I mean, I have all these scenes in my mind of you, Sylvia, getting off the train in Patankot in India, going up these windy roads in the Himalayas to go visit the Dar, you know, the Dalai Lama, um, or um, scenes from our travels and teaching in various countries and teacher meetings and so forth. And when things were difficult, her spirit was always to, when she used the phrase kind of to buck everybody up, you know, to just kind of bring us back to a place of well-being. Our, our mutual good friend Annie Lamott says, my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I try not to go there alone. And in some way, Sylvia has built this place for us because it really wouldn't have happened without you. I mean, we had, we sat in Sylvia and Seymour's living room and thought, can, can we buy this land? Could we actually build this place? Could we get this money? Do you remember? All the meeting, 30 years of planning and imagining with many of us together, it wouldn't have happened without you. This is really a tribute to your, um, 
your great heart and your incredible energy and vitality and your genius. And it's so wonderful to do it together. Um, it's also kind of amazing because Sylvia is one of the main teachers of Dharma in the West. And I see all these pictures of her on the front of Buddhist magazines and things like that. Um, and yet she didn't practice in Asia at all. I mean, she made a couple of short visits there. But she actually, she's kind of homegrown. She did all her meditation training here um, and turned out to be this quite amazing and gifted teacher. And one of the secrets about her is that um, she's a lot wilder than you think she is. <laughs> and her wildness, I mean, she's done wild outer things. We won't tell those stories. Um, but she's also done wild inner exploration. She has, as we say in the back room, killer samadhi, killer um, meditation. And she's basically a mystic. You know, and so she's talking about Deepama, but I remember times, you know, when she would sit and then I would talk to her and she'd say, well, all the chakras are opening and then my body dissolved in light and then I became one with the universe and then and then and the next thing. And I didn't want, know what to do, but I thought, this is okay. You know, which is a kind of a Sylvia response. You know, or she'd call me from somewhere and say, I've been doing all these yogic practices and now I'm teaching my class in yoga. And I looked in the mirror and there was someone teaching, but there was nobody there. And I don't know, really, how do you teach when nobody's there? But it's okay. I know it's all right. It's okay. I said, just don't drive like that, Sylvia. You know, kind of keep it. <laughs> or, I mean, one doesn't talk about that in this room, but I'm going to say it anyway. So she's doing all these you know, amazing yogic practices. It's like Deepama, really, and dissolving and delight and all the chakras and all the things are opening. And then she says, that, well, you know, I'm having this experience of kind of um, orgasmic bliss. Um, and I think it's okay. <laughs> In fact, I'm sure it's okay. <laughs> and I said, yes. She said, so I think I'm just going to go for it, you know. <laughs> She is a practical mystic, is what she is. Um, and uh, um, you never thought I'd tell that story, did you? There you are, see? But I wanted them to see really why you were as happy as you are. And also, she's incredibly cute. She's about the cutest 70-year-old that I know. It's really wonderful. And she looks like a grandmother, but, you know, she has another secret life as a, as a Catholic nun and another secret life as a kind of hermit author and all kinds of secret lives that she has. In, and, um, and there's something about the way that she lives and teaches. Thomas Merton put it this way. He said, saints are what they are, not because of their holiness, but because the gift of sainthood makes it possible for them to admire everyone else. And there's a kind of beauty and gift that you have carried for me and for tens of thousands of people in this community and in your writings and in all your work of admiring and seeing the beauty in and remembering um, that is a tremendous gift. Um, and it's so simple. I mean, you would come back, you and could come back from a, from a, 
uh, swim meet with Seymour, the master swimming things, and say, you know, oh, I was with all these people, none of them meditate, and they're all so decent, you know. And I hope we can, and I hope that in from all our spiritual practice that we can be as decent as they are. That was kind of her aspiration that we all be decent in some way, maybe awake and decent, um, and and mature in some way, that we would mature together and mature really beautifully. So Mary Orr writes, I'm in Maine with my elderly and exceedingly wobbly father who is in the hospital. Gil wants to find Meta as grandmotherly love, and when I think of Sylvia, I immediately get a hit of grandmotherly love, which she embodies so well. Please convey my own grandmotherly love to her, my highest regards, and a deep, deep bow of respect. And could you all sit for just a moment and send Mary and her father a dose of grandmotherly love? (sighs) And from Anna. What I most love about Sylvia is her laughter. We've shared many laughs. Whenever I see Sylvia, I smile because I know that a good laugh is on its way. Sylvia, my heart is smiling at the thought of your birthday, even though I cannot be there. All my love, Anna. And from Wes, who writes, Sylvia, the 70s aren't such a bad decade. Consciousness raising, high-end drugs and disco, party on, girl. Love, Wes. (laughs) (laughs) And from Eugene and Pam, Sylvia, happy birthday to your body. (laughs) May you enjoy all the blessings that you give to everyone else. Love, Eugene and Pam. I'm Guy. I'm one of the teachers here. And I think, Sylvia, you and I have been teaching together for about 10 years now. And we've spent a lot of hours together in this meditation hall, often listening to each other talk. And it struck me because I wasn't teaching the last retreat that happened, but I came up, it was about two weeks ago at the start of the retreat, to hear one of your Dharma talks. And I could share many things about Sylvia that I love. You you all know she's an amazing person. She's wise. She's compassionate. She's very honest, which is one of the things I most love. But what struck me that night when I came into the hall, I sat down over there, and my mind was in a little bit of stress. I can't even remember what it was about. I had something on my mind, and I was feeling a little uptight. Sylvia started talking at 7.30, and by 7.30 and a half, that was completely out of my mind, (laughs) because when Sylvia speaks, it's like she casts a spell of metta over the entire hall, and everybody is immediately touched and relaxed and feels at home and enjoying themselves, and that's just what happened to me that evening. That is a really special gift, and because you do that for all the yogis, it makes our work so much easier. And I love it, too. So thank you so much for all the years we spent together, and I hope we'll have a lot more. Nobody can do what you do. Thank you, dear. It's going to get harder and harder to top what people say because everyone loves Sylvia. Who doesn't love Sylvia? My name is Sally Clough. I'm Guy's wife, and I also have the privilege of regularly teaching with Sylvia, and I'm very proud to be able to call her a friend and a colleague. But most importantly, she's my teacher, and what she teaches me is how to love people. I don't think I'm a very good student yet, but I'm learning. She says it's a practice that she does to find uh, a 
to find a way to love everyone that she meets, but I think she does it just naturally. I think it's just something that comes out of her deep sense of caring and interest in people, and out of the caring, she just loves everyone that she meets because she cares about them, and it shows. That's why we all love her. And you can see out of that interest, she can make a story out of anything. I can be sitting next to her experiencing the same thing, and I'll just go, well, that was that. And she'll come in the hall that night and tell this amazing story with this deep and meaningful uh, end to it. And I'm kind of like, where was I when that was happening? <laughs> and not only that, I've sometimes told a story of my own in the hall, gone back afterwards to the teacher room, and she'll tell me, oh, I love that story. And she'll retell it to me, but better and with a better ending to it. <laughs> that I then proceed to use because she really made the story work. So I'm trying to learn all I can from you, Sylvia, and I hope I have many, many more years of learning from you and being with you. My name is uh, Donald Rothberg, and I feel very privileged and blessed to have known Sylvia about 16 or 17 years. Um, she's been a teacher. She's been a mentor. We've been arrested together. <laughs> uh, she's really, in a very beautiful way, she's passed on a lot of her teaching secrets. One of my fondest memories, and I was reflecting on this this afternoon, was that over about a three-year period, we had maybe four or five weeks together where I just sat in and watched her teach and watched her interact with people. And then she would say what she thought she was doing. And a lot of times it was just the intuition coming, the heart opening. And it was amazing to be in those um, settings and to watch her work with people, to see people feel so safe, so open to... And this is some of the language that I found she used when she was telling me what to do. Just let people fall in love with themselves. Just let that happen. And I wanted to read some words which came to me this afternoon just to, um, to express my gratitude and my love. I appreciate so much your mentoring, passing on of meta-transmissions, our work together, your support, our friendship, your being there with so much over the last years, your openness, deep honesty, passion for the Dharma, your presence when my father Simon was dying and afterward... Your spark of humor, dedication to whatever you do to do it well, your creativity, loyalty, big and deep intelligence, family smarts, strong energy, willingness to keep learning, kindness, wisdom, longing for justice, wells of metta, humanness, inspiration, teaching to so many, smile, kind worries, questioning, willingness to get arrested together, sparkle of eyes, endless energy, appreciation of limits, kindness, kindness, wisdom, wisdom, smile, smile, love, love. Hi, Sylvia. I'm Sharda Rogel. We just finished teaching two weeks together, and I, I fell in love with Sylvia. This was, it was a wonderful time. I don't have so much chance to teach with you, but um, we were in teacher training together 25 or more years ago, and when we started that, I knew you were wiser than me then. 
And I've learned so much from you, and I, I feel your inspiration all through Spirit Rock all the time. I was trying to think of a story, um, and the one that kept coming back, and I don't think I've ever really told you this, and I didn't know Jack was going to say what he said about the orgasmic bliss, but <laughs> I'm remembering back like 1983 when we sat at a retreat together with Christopher, T- Christopher Titmus. And you asked a question in the hall, and you said, um, what do I do with sexual feelings? And I was so shocked because I've never heard anybody ask about sex in a retreat before. And I was just so amazed that you would ask that. And it's, it's amazing how that's just stayed in my mind over all these years. <laughs> I think that's remarkable. But, um, <laughs> of course, his, you probably were wondering what his response would be, but his response was, of course, you know, that's just another feeling. Of course you have to let that one in. But it was just, I, I just, that was the one that just kept coming back. But I just wanted to thank you so much for being part of what happens here, and I love you. Hello, I'm James Barris. We go back a long way. I'm just, uh, I was just sitting down thinking, the first time I saw you was right after I moved out to California. And somebody said, oh, you should go up to Kent Field and see Sylvia. And we sat in a room uh, with Seymour and I think uh, Jackie Schwartz, and I said, oh, this is very far out. Well, if California's like this, this isn't a bad place at all, because uh, there, there was such a welcoming and love and, and opening, and that was 28, 29 years ago, and uh, it's been that way ever since, just that open-hearted welcoming, and as people have said, you just have this city of seeing the good in people, number of stories I could tell that I won't just from holding hands in a tidal wave and wondering if we'd make it out alive and just Sylvia just reaching over and nothing else to do just to hold hands and, and be there and uh, going to India and being with Punjaji and seeing you just, I thought that you had lit up as much as I had seen you here in, in California but just seeing other levels of just touching what Jack had alluded to there in, in the flesh. Um, but um, what always uh, what amazes me is, you know when you were a kid and somebody told the joke that just touched your, your tickle button and you couldn't stop giggling? And, you know, maybe it would happen, oh, you know a few times a year if you were lucky, she's got her button just like ready to go, you know, all the time. She's so quick to laugh and see the, the delight in life. And that part of that, I think, is just, you know the secret of loving people and loving life. That it's not a You say it's a practice, but it just comes naturally to you because you see that's the best way to be. That's just what makes you happy, to to see 
the good around you and to see the humor in life and to see all the, the beauty and the goodness. And by your seeing that so easily and beautifully, it just reminds all of us to do the same. And that, I think, is as much your city, your gift, as anything else that you transmit. And you do it so beautifully, and I'm so happy to be your friend. And uh, may we go on into the sunset that way. I love you. Hello, I'm, my name is Elizabeth Heitner, and I'm one of um, the participants in Sylvia's Wednesday Sangha. And um, I made a card that I wanted everyone to sign because um, Sylvia said no gifts. So uh, we wanted to give you something from our collective hearts, and this is for you. You're welcome. Can open. Thank you, Elizabeth. So you don't have to go to Calcutta, huh? Find deep in mind your own neighborhood. And um, you are the exemplar. Life is not a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving safely in a pretty and well-preserved body, but rather to skid in broadside, thoroughly used up, totally worn out, and loudly proclaim, wow, what a ride. And, and Sylvia, that's really, that's your spirit. And, and we all, I mean, I and all those of us who admire and love and get inspired by you, yeah, want to grow up like Sylvia. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on August 23, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.